Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Beat podcast. Uh, the mission of our podcast is to show the real-life challenges of implementing technology in healthcare. And the podcast is sponsored by Demingas, a company that develops IT solutions for healthcare startups and companies. For more information, you can check uh, the website demingas.com. My name is Ivan Dunsky, your host as always. And uh, today I'm joined by a very special guest, David Wortley. David is a social entrepreneur with a passion for the impact of disruptive digital technologies on all aspects of business and society. Now, David is a VP at International Society of Digital Medicine, but earlier he was the founding director of the Serious Games Institute and has pioneered the use of technologies such as virtual reality, video conferencing, and wearable devices. He is also the author of Gadgets uh, to God, book, which charts mankind's uh, changing relationship with technology during his lifetime. David, thank you for joining. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, and it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, usually I'm the host at these kind of events, so it makes a nice change to have somebody else being the host and the moderator. Yeah, cool. So could you please give a brief background for our listeners of your story in healthcare and what do you currently do at International Society of Digital Medicine? Yes, well, my background is not medical. My background is, uh, is in technology. I started off in uh, telecommunications and electronic and electrical engineering, and I had a scholarship with what is now British Telecom uh, that took mm -hmm. me to university, and I was in management uh, for a while. Then I got uh, disillusioned with the promotion prospects within a public organization. So I decided it would be nice to have my own business. So mm. I decided that computing and telecommunications were going to converge. I had no experience of selling. So I thought mm. the best thing to do was to get a job as a, a marketing executive for a, a large computer company. So I worked for IBM uh, for mm -hmm. five years, working selling mini mainframe computers to mainly large organizations before I got the chance to start my own business. So my background is in technology. I've always had a, a passion for it. And I didn't actually get involved in healthcare um, until probably around something like 2013. Even then, it was one of these things in life, a combination of circumstances. I got several of my friends were telling me I was too fat uh, and they were worried about me. <laughs> but it, the, the thing that, that actually made the difference was the fact that I did, as a result of a recommendation from a friend, I did a DNA test. And originally it was because this friend thought that I had Russian blood in me. So it could trace my genetic origins. And she thought I looked Russian. That was the, the idea. Anyway, I did a DNA test with 23andMe.com. Uh -huh. And it came back that I was basically European from my genetic origins with no very small chance of any Russian origins. But what it did tell me that I was that I'd got a 50% a greater chance of getting diabetes too than the general population. Mm. And that made me uh, just think a little bit. And it just happened at the time that mm. the one of the first wearable devices came onto the market, the Jawbone Up. 
So I decided to game it for my own health and see whether I could make a difference to my health by using wearable technologies to measure my physical activity, my diet and my sleep, etc. And within three months, I'd lost 21 kilos. And so I proved to myself um, that uh, this was something that was really of value. And in that process, I improved not only my physical health by walking 10,000 steps every day, but also my zest for life, my mental sharpness, and some of the key indicators of uh, diabetes, blood sugar levels, etc. They also uh, all improved. So that started me on the journey and I wrote articles about it and I think that was the reason why the International Society for Digital Medicine invited me to their inaugural conference Mm -hmm. in 2016 that was held in Nanjing they'd had uh, digital medicine conferences in China previously but this was the first time they wanted to attract an international audience and I was one of a couple of people from the UK invited to this opening conference and I got to know the president and the founder and the chief executive. I explained the work that I've been doing at the Serious Games Institute and they asked me if I would be interested in setting up a European chapter and find trying to develop new members across Europe interested and involved in digital medicine. So that's how I came to start the European chapter, and at the time I was just a a member of uh, their their council, but a couple of years ago they gave me an award for distinguished service because of what I've been able to achieve, and they made me a vice president, and that was uh, three years ago uh, now. So I continue to uh, promote digital medicine and digital health, And unlike you, I've been running webinars and virtual events um, Mm -hmm. with special guests who have a particular interest in the use of technology for medicine and and for health. Yeah, cool. Good for you to know about the progress. Could you please give a little bit more background on what did you do at the Serious Game Institute? Yeah, I, I was the founding director of the Serious uh-huh. Games Institute. And I'd, I'd previously been working as a project manager at a university called De Montfort University in Leicester. Uh-huh. And my boss at the time told me about this new post at Coventry University. They were looking for somebody to set up uh, the Serious Games Institute and make it an international centre of excellence. Um, and although I've not been involved in games, the technologies that I had been involved with were associated with games technologies. And so I applied for it. And to be honest with you, I didn't really think I had much chance of getting the job because, as I say, I've not had any background in games. And Mm -hmm. at the age, in in, at the time, in my uh, middle 50s, I thought they would want somebody who was a bit younger than me to uh, set it up. But my, my commercial experience and the fact that I've I've spoken at a lot of international conferences, I think helped uh, to persuade them that I could Uh establish their international reputation. So I started that job in 2007. And over the next four or five years, I achieved what they wanted me to achieve. And the model of the Serious Games Institute has been copied in Singapore, 
in uh, South Africa and also the USA. Basically, it is uh, about how you can use the technologies used in video games for serious purposes. And a lot of that in the early days was to do with health and medicine, particularly in the area of training. Mm-hmm. Um, Could you please share maybe a few the most bright cases of the usage of games technology in healthcare and education? Yes, I mean, there, there are many, many, many different kinds, but related to health, I can tell you uh, about some of the projects that I wasn't involved in developing, but I was involved in promoting and working with the people who did develop them. And mm-hmm. probably one of the earliest examples, which was very innovative at the time, it was a, a project uh, designed to train paramedics to deal with an emergency situation after an explosion in a city center. Mm-hmm. And this really had all the characteristics of serious games and simulations for healthcare because one of the reasons why this technology is so important in this field is that with something like an explosion in a city center, you don't want to train people by setting off an explosion <laughs> and killing people. Uh, you can't obviously can't do that. And the way that they tr- train people in, t- to deal with uh, these emergency situations typically is either to use dummies, mannequins, or to use actors who are made up. And so, you know, they, they pretend to be injured in the blast or a dummy is used as a casualty. And it's not really a realistic uh, situation. So this company called Blitz Games, who are based in our region, they were at the time the largest independent games company in the world. And their background is in entertainment games. They were formed by a couple of twin brothers back in the 1980s, and they mainly did entertainment games and some very big, big selling entertainment games Mm -hmm. on consoles and arcade machines. Well, they set up an arm to see if they could use what they learned in in the games industry to create scenarios and apply it to health. And so they did a couple of things, which even today, if I showed you a video of what they did back in 2007, I think you'd be uh, remarkably impressed because the first thing they did was to do a 3D scan of one of their graphics designers. And they used this with the games technology to simulate, first of all, emotions. They were able to artificially simulate emotions that were very, very realistic on this graphics design. The application they developed was called Dying Dave. And so once they got the emotions organized, they then connected this simulation to medical data to show students what it's like to watch somebody die from a head wound in the pace of a minute. So they connected the medical data to the games data And what you saw was this person's face, pretty much what you see on the screen of me now, that was Mm -hmm. a head and shoulders view, Uh, seemed quite normal at the beginning. Then you see, uh, get a head wound, Mm -hmm. and then you see what happens when that person is dying. You see the color go from them, you see the veins on the neck start to pump as the body tries to pump around the blood. And it's really 
quite quite scary. So yeah. they 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 use that information to create these scenarios to train paramedics. So they they created a, a model of in fact it was the their nearest town was Leamington Spa. They created a model of that, and then they created um, a games environment with casualties with different kinds of injuries. And the idea was the paramedic had to go to each of the injured people and triage them. They had to diagnose what what the problem was Mm -hmm. and very quickly establish whether they needed urgent medical attention, whether there was no hope for them or whether they were okay to be left to deal with somebody more urgent. And so the paramedics uh, had five or six casualties to go round and they had to perform the triage protocol correct triage protocol to do the tests on these um, avatars basically and they were evaluated on the accuracy of their triage and the time it took them to triage and the reason why this was such a significant project was it was the the very first one that was properly researched so they had 50 paramedics who used trained using the game and they came from uh, different sexes, different ages, different mm-hmm. background. Some f- were familiar with technology. Diverse uh, group. Mm-hmm. A di- very diverse group. And they compared the results in the game to the results with 50 paramedics trained using uh, traditional techniques, mannequins mainly. Mm-hmm. And what they were able to st- establish was that the learning outcomes for people using the game were far more, well, not far, they, they were significantly better than the ones trained traditionally. And the main reason behind uh, these results was that uh, the paramedics felt much more engaged. They felt it was more like a real situation. Mm-hmm. So they were totally immersed in the game when the, they were playing to try and get the best kind of results. More emotionally connected. Mm-hmm. They were emotionally connected in ways that were not possible really with mannequins and to a less extent with human beings. So that was the very first one. And then following on from that, there were quite a number of other uh, serious games, which are mostly revolved around simulations and simulations of scenarios like field hospitals, military hospitals, training people on procedures there, or first responder emergency situations. That was, as I say, 2007, 2008. So the technology was far less evolved than it is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And today you've got much more realistic scenarios that are used in that kind of uh, training. Uh, I'm curious what this company does now. It doesn't exist anymore. And that's not because of their work. The the company was called TrueSim. The serious games arm of Blitz Games was called TrueSim. Mm -hmm. But Blitz Games no longer exists. The two founders of the company are still involved in, in games. They've set up a, another games company, but it is more of an entertainment games mm-hmm. company. Because the problem uh, with trying to build a business in serious games is, well, there are many different problems. First of all, people don't like the phrase serious games because they can't see how games can be serious. <laughs> so you have a problem selling the idea. In contradicting the name. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a contradiction in terms. And so it's difficult to kind of get uh, traction. And of mm-hmm. course, 
in the health sector particularly, as you're probably uh, well aware, the health sector itself um, is very, very heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to take a, a lot of uh, precautions to make sure that whatever it is that you are doing with, with people, whether it's training or providing medical treatment through digital technologies, it doesn't do any harm. So this is really a legacy of the pharmaceutical industry and drug trials and all of that. Uh, it's a very traditionally a very long and expensive process. Um, and it's only in recent years that the agencies, particularly in the USA, have now started to accept the idea of using games and other digital technologies as prescriptions and diagnostics. And so the Federal Drugs Agency, FDA, who are responsible in, in the USA for approving these, mm. are now approving these kinds of technologies for all kinds of uh, different conditions, um, including mental health issues, addiction, and that kind of thing. And do you envision that this regulation would be easier in the future and that will allow uh, like more fast adoption of the technology in, in healthcare? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think COVID-19 has played a big part in accelerating that. Uh, because if you just take as an example, the development of vaccines and drug treatments for coronavirus, the urgency of the situation meant that the approval time for new vaccines and drugs has had to be shortened significantly because they realized the urgency of it. So I think that's one reason. The other reason to do with COVID-19 is the fact that with social isolation and social distancing, people are using webinars and Zoom meetings. Uh, and so they are a lot more open to accepting the idea of digital technologies being involved in helping with diagnostic. The area where I think there's going to be the biggest growth over the next few years is in digital therapeutics. Mm -hmm. So we move from a situation where digital technologies will go beyond just training people and doing diagnostics to digital technologies that actually carry out treatments for, for people. You mean providing care, actual care? Yes, yeah, as an alternative to drugs in some cases. Oh, and could uh, you please elaborate on that? Like, how do you see this? Well, you know, one, one of the biggest concerns these days with drug treatments is addiction and comorbidity. Mm -hmm. You know, people, as they get older, and my partner's father, who recently passed away, was a very good example they're taking literally almost dozens of drugs, different drugs, mm -hmm. uh, and how they interact with each other is still not widely known and established. And so it really, uh, really doesn't help. So we are now at the threshold of where we can begin to use technology to help people to manage their own personal health better. And so wearable devices which you know measure your physical activity and your life being the technologies of sensor sensors is improving the communication network with 5g is improving all the time and these things go together to begin to make it possible that we can not only effectively monitor what's happening with our own bodies 
but we can also use that information to Im- improve our health. Like a feedback you know, loop. I, I yeah, you get a feedback loop. You get the, the information that is provided to you uh, and the tools and gamification is a, a big part of this. Uh, nearly all the wearable devices that you have uh, use some form of gamification to help motivate people to do the right thing as far as their health is concerned. You know, they do it in different ways. You know, gamification is a much misunderstood term. But if you look, for example, you know, I I have a Fitbit. That measures my physical activity and a whole range of other things. But the gamification part of it um, is really uh, giving you encouragement. You know, when you've done 10,000 steps for the day, you get a little you know, vibration on the phone and you get a message saying, well done, you've done your 10,000 steps. If I sit, and I'm, I, I, this is probably going to happen this afternoon, if I'm sitting here for talking to you for 50 minutes, at 10, 10 minutes to three o'clock in the UK, I will get a little buzz on my phone to tell me that I haven't done my 250 steps. Yeah. <laughs> You so haven't delivered, yeah. I haven't delivered. Uh, and, and the things that actually work for me, and, and the point is it's different for different people, but what works for me is that it's a challenge for me to be active 12 hours in the day. So imagine if I do 250 steps, that's one hour you know, I've completed of, of activity. So I like to try and do 12 hours out of 12. Very, it's very rarely that I do less than nine hours active hours of the day because a lot of what I do is sat in front of a computer screen. But that's one uh, thing that motivates me. And the other thing is, is to look at my sleep patterns and my heart mm-hmm. rate. And I notice, and this just it had an effect on me, I notice that if I drink alcohol in the evening, and it depends what kind of alcohol I drink, but my pulse rate will go up the next day. My resting pulse rate, I guarantee it will go up the next day. I mean, I'm, I'm whether you call me fortunate or not, but I have a very low resting pulse rate. You know, when I was at university, my resting pulse rate was 42 because I was very, very fit. Today, it's 46. But if I have a, a particularly Pinot Grigio, if I have a, a couple of glasses of Pinot Grigio in the evening, the next day, my pulse rate will be 49 or 50. I guarantee it. And then if I start, you know, if I have days when I don't drink alcohol, which I most of, most days I don't, but if I drink water, then my pulse rate gradually uh, uh, goes down again. So doing 10,000 steps every day, that's been a challenge for me. And I've been doing it every day virtually for seven years. And I've missed very, very few days uh, in that time. Yeah, so it uh, happens that with that um, much data that these companies are gathering and with the gamification tools that I are providing, that would increase the adoption of technology among uh, all the people. And that will also drive the technology itself to become even more enhanced. And uh, Yes, yeah. yes. It, today they are, uh, well, I call it the consumerization of digital uh, technologies like wearables. Mm-hmm. The devices that started out like the jawbone up has no intention to make it a medical device. And even the Fitbit, I don't think that is uh, classified as a medical device. You have to have some rigorous tests to prove that 
whatever it is you're measuring is accurate to a certain standard. So if you think about how technology has advanced just in the seven or eight years that I've been uh, using this technology, today, uh, literally today, earlier on this morning, I got another watch, a smartwatch from China. And what it it will measure, and, and I've got to test it to test its validity, but it does heart rate variability, it does blood pressure, it does oxygen saturation, it does a whole range of other things. It's still not classified as a medical device, but it is incredibly sophisticated. I don't know whether I can show you the, mm-hmm. the display, whether mm-hmm. you can see see that. No, you can't see it very well. But it but it is a much much bigger much bigger watch, and it has an enormous amount of uh, functionality. So I literally put it on. 10 minutes before I spoke to you. So I'm going to uh, test it out and I can compare it against the Fitbit um, and other proper medical devices to see what the state of the art is today. I think many people are worried about wearables and about the fact that, you know, recording your health mm-hmm. data. Um, sharing data. Mm-hmm. Uh, sharing data is a, is a dangerous thing. And of course it is, there are dangers associated with it, but I look at it like this, is today when you go to a a hospital or even the doctor, it's likely that you will see a doctor or a medical professional that you've never met before. It's not like uh, when I was growing up, you had your family doctor and that's who Mm -hmm. you saw and they knew you, they knew everything about you. So you're going to a totally new person And if you don't have any data about you, what information they have in the National Health Service in the UK is very, very limited and out of date. So if you can present to them uh, up-to-date information that gives them, you know, a better chance of diagnosing what's wrong with you, that surely must be an advantage. And if you decide, I want to keep my data private, you run a bigger risk of them not being able to pick up what is wrong with you and treat you properly. So for me, it makes sense. Yeah, of course, the more data you have and the more consolidated data you have, like from different sources, from different states, the more insights it gives to specific specialists in, in healthcare. So I'm curious to know, now mental health issue is a big issue in most of countries in the world so how do you see the vr technology can be applied for mental health issues and if that um, gives any credit and adds any value to it well yes i i think virtual reality um combined particularly with sensor technologies has got um, an enormous amount of potential for mental health issues in particular a a couple i can touch stress management is one of the biggest uh, growth areas is being able to deal with people who become stressed and so in in a virtual reality environment it's like the effect that games have on people you can become totally absorbed in the environment And with many meditation apps that are available in virtual reality today, you can see a a fairly quick change to a person's stress levels through the well-designed 
virtual reality environments. And the, there's been quite a bit of uh, research that's been uh, done on this to indicate that it does provide positive benefits. So if you combine this with the kind of wearables we've just been talking about that are able to measure your pulse rate, your body temperature, your skin temperature, your perspiration, etc., you are being able to begin to start to validate some of the treatments that are available for meditation, particularly for help with breathing properly. So the stress management, I think, is one of the most obvious and common areas. But even things like not only for calming patients down who've got dementia, but also being able to do some kind of brain training that helps to offset the impact of, of, of dementia. And I've, I've tried out um, a number of different applications, which are both designed to train your short-term memory mm-hmm. um, and also help with diagnosis. And there's a couple of examples that have done, been produced by a company called XR Health, recently received an enormous amount of funding for development of their their company, but they have some applications. I'll just explain briefly two of them that are dementia-related. One of them is to do with short-term memory. Um, And so this virtual reality environment places you in the arrival lounge or it's where, where you pick up the luggage Uh, at an airport when you come in and you pick up the luggage from the the carousel and so this game places you inside this airport and you begin the game by being shown three objects um, Mm -hmm. that belong to you and then when you've had say five or ten seconds and all of these parameters can be varied so as you get better at the game they show you more objects they show you for a less amount of time but you've got to remember those three objects uh-huh. when the game starts the things come off the carousel and you have to uh, identify which ones are yours so when you see something you've seen before that belongs to you you basically click on it to select it and so as the game develops the objects come off the belt faster and faster you can tune all of these and so it records your short-term memory capability how many got right how many got wrong Mm -hmm. uh, what your memory capacity is so over a period of time you can see whether you are improving or deteriorating so that's a short-term memory Uh, one of the other aspects of uh, dementia is reaction times and so uh, the second game involves being in a, in a fairground and you are looking at nine balls, nine colored balls in a, in a matrix, three by, by three. Mm-hmm. Um, and your controller is a boxing glove. Uh, so if you have a red boxing glove then and you see a, a ball light up red, you have to punch mm-hmm. that ball. But if you've got a green boxing glove, you don't punch the red. You wait until the green one shows up. So it tests your reaction time and your ability to correctly identify different colours. And again, that's by the same company 
but not, not only does it uh, help to train you in a training way, it also acts as a kind of diagnostic tool. So if you deteriorate, then you can pick up early signs of dementia. So that's you know just a couple of examples that combine treatment and diagnosis in a game like virtual reality environment. Yeah, and of course, uh, they can, as you said, they can apply predictive analysis algorithms and, and define like at what point they expect that the state would become worse. Yes, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And could you please share with us uh, what are projects you're currently working on? Well, I do a, a number of things. I, I help assess projects that are put forward for funding. Um, so mm-hmm. people come up with innovative ideas and I'm one of the people who look at the proposal and decide whether it's uh, sufficiently innovative or commercially interesting to be worth putting money into. So that, that occupies uh, some of my time. I also combine a number of different interests in something uh, called 360 and 360 Living Memories. And this is really a combination of my love of people and storytelling and trying to capture people's memories for not only for themselves, but also for their families in virtual reality. You know, so I've had a good example of this. As I mentioned, my partner's father passed away just a few weeks ago. He was 96 years old. But he was very well loved by his, he got four daughters and his family. Fortunately, he didn't have any dementia. There's nothing wrong with his brain, but um, he had all kinds of other medical problems that eventually Mm -hmm. finished up making him bedridden. He had to stay in bed. But before that time, I was able to capture some video in virtual reality, capture his memories, stories about his life, when his partner, who is also in her 90s, when she came to visit him, I got them to talk about how they met and mm-hmm. I captured it in virtual reality in our living room. So after he's passed away, his family can still see and hear him talking about his memories. So he still lives on in a virtual oh. reality environment. Um, and I've done the same with some... There was, when my partner's family came over, there were his children and grandchildren and some great-grandchildren. We had a big barbecue on on the patio outside and they were talking about some of their memories. And so I had a panoramic camera, 360-degree camera on the table, and I recorded these memories so that the family, after he's gone, can not only hear a story but they can be there and I think this is an important for a lot of people who you know who want to preserve their memories for them, themselves and their family the virtual reality tools and the consumer devices we have available today can help them do that so I created this living memories website with some case studies and examples there so it's not just memories of a family member I also have some heritage memories there. So I'm, I particularly love steam trains. And so when I go on a, on a heritage steam train or have that kind of experience, I record it in virtual reality so that other people can 
know what steam trains are, are all about. And then the third application area, and this is just three of many, the third one is from my days at university. I, I was quite a good footballer. I played part-time professional football. And when I was at university, we had the best university side they've ever had at Birmingham. And we reached the national finals two years. But the captain of our team arranged a reunion, a 50 years reunion. So some of my old teammates came came together and we had a great time at the university sharing stories. And so recently I did interviews like like we're doing now Mm -hmm. um, I recorded and I put those in a virtual reality environment based on our university and so you can hear the stories of your teammates or my teammates and the things that we did in those days at university they are all there for uh, future generations do you believe that that would replace the photo I, I think The, the thing is, uh, you know, we could talk about this for a long time, but uh, I think one of the problems with technology we have today is that it's so easy to do selfies, to do Instagram, to do Facebook, to do yeah. videos. You're just saturated with no end of photographs and videos. <laughs> uh, and you, yeah. when you look at them, you think, well, when, when did that happen? So this is more to do with capturing the most precious times in your life so it will be special occasions like weddings uh, birthday parties mm -hmm. special holiday trips that mean a lot to you and we don't realize it today i don't think it's you know that it, it's important to use the technology in a creative way to capture the things that are valuable because otherwise everything is facebook instagram it's not like the old photograph albums You know, I'm It's old enough to remember yeah. when we just yeah. had photograph albums and you get them out maybe once a year or you'd find them in a drawer. I know, oh, wow, wow, I remember that. Look at my, what my, my grandfather looked like, who's, who's dead now. And you see them and it brings back memories in your mind and emotions to associate with it. But today we just got a fantastic opportunity to go beyond that, to actually be there again. Um, and to relive what we we did in those days. So I think it's going to be something that is not really commercially viable at the moment, but I think in future, people will find it more and more important to be able to capture those memories. And, you know, it's lovely when my partner's family, they come and visit and they put the VR headset on um, and they see a family memory, and it brings them to tears sometimes. Yeah, of course. You know, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we are coming to the end of an interview, uh, but I have uh, one more question. Could you please tell us more about your book, Gadgets to God? What is it about, and what is the idea behind it? Well, I I thought long and hard about the name because it's not a religious book. That uh -huh. was a thing that I wanted to try and get over in the title of the book what I firmly believe and, and that is that in my lifetime our relationship with technology has changed fundamentally from being uh, technology being uh, I describe them as gadgets these are tools that we we use to make life easier for us but they weren't you know we didn't depend on them you know We had a calculator to help us calculate, mm -hmm. but they were gadgets. Everything was a gadget. And 
going back to steam trains, I always wanted to be an engine driver. And I've driven steam trains now in my later years, including a steam train that used to go past my house when I was a young boy. I got the chance to drive that was the first one that I drove. And I try to explain to people that when you drive a steam train, it's like you are riding a horse. It's like a living being because every steam engine is different and you feel when you uh, open the regulator to uh, control the steam and the speed, it, you, you feel it. And so it's a combination of the skill and intelligence of a human being combined with the power of a machine. Mm -hmm. Today, mm -hmm. and this is where the God comes in, I argue that our relationship with technology is indistinguishable from our relationship with a deity. If you think about how you perceive God as being an all-powerful, all-seeing person who knows inside your heart, he knows everything you do, he knows about you, he looks, <laughs> he's looking out for you. You know, all religions have this kind of view of this all-powerful being. It's exactly the same with technology. You know, we've got the cloud computing, we've got uh, uh, algorithms and data analytics that know us better than we know ourselves. And we spend more time communing with technology than we do with God. <laughs> more advanced it becomes, uh, more it becomes similar to God. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and that, the, the, the problem is that if you, you know, and I don't want to get biblical in, in this, but if you go back to the days of the Old Testament, you know, one of the things that made God so angry that he caused the flood and all of these things, mm -hmm. you know, whether you believe that's a, a fact or not. The point is that he got angry because human beings were creating gods in their own likeness. And we are doing exactly the same today. We are creating gods in our own likeness. We are creating artificial intelligence and machine learning, which to all intents and purpose, purposes is as powerful as a god. You know, it's making decisions and doing things with our environment and, and with our life in ways that we traditionally associate with what a god uh, would, would do. And I think that's, you know, a little bit worrying, uh, a little bit worrying that some of the developments in artificial intelligence will not be good for the future of mankind, in my opinion. Yeah, especially taking into consideration that the more sophisticated and enhanced artificial intelligence algorithms are, the less we can control of them. I did an interview for Facebook recently. They commissioned mm -hmm. a consultancy to do interview people about Facebook, basically, and whether Facebook was doing a good job or not. And one of the, the points that came out in the conversation, I had just like... Um, talking to you with the interview was the fact that when I look at Facebook, it presents to me what it thinks I'm interested in. And the longer I look at something, then the more likely I'm going to get something else like that. And going back to the early days of Facebook, I, I used to get adverts on my Facebook page, which were uh, well, hopefully irrelevant to me. I mean, the, what, I used to get adverts for knee replacements or knee surgery um, and breast augmentation. 
<laughs> why they thought I needed to augment my breasts, so I'm, I'm not quite sure. But today, you know, you see I, in, in placed in front of me sometimes really quite worrying aspects that you, if you look too long at a particular thing, then you're going to get more and more of that. And some of the things uh, I think are dubious, to be honest. And I think one of the most worrying things that I see that, that comes up on my video suggestions, women who are, what shall I say, they're, they're not strippers, but they are dressed. You're encouraged to watch in, in case they take their clothes off. That's the only way I can put it. And there seems to be a lot of uh, women who are doing this. And I think this is a problem with social influencers. If people who become social influencers and have followings of thousands and sometimes millions of people are not necessarily, in fact, very often not at all, the right kind of role models for the future society. So if you go back in time into, you know, not that many years ago, you could expect what, what I call knowledge professionals were respected. These are the people you went to if you wanted advice and they were your role mm -hmm. models. So whether that was a professional footballer, whether it was a solicitor or a teacher, years of training that they'd done to get to where they, they were, they respected, they really shaped the opinions. Today, it's the people who are in front of your face all the time. You know, and I'm not suggesting that Lady Gaga and some of these other uh, personalities, but when people have millions and millions of viewers, they get asked for their opinions on things that they absolutely have no knowledge or about at all. And the people who follow them, they're influenced by their views and they're not experts and not knowledgeable in these areas. And I think in many ways, that's a bad thing for society. Yeah. Yeah, but, but now it's the time when we need to develop our critical analysis uh, skills and then think what we are consuming in terms of data and information. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we covered a lot today. Thank you for your insights. I would like to end this interview with the light exercise called rapid fire round. So I will ask you several questions and, and you come up with, with answer whatever you like. Um, okay. what, what is your favorite book? Well, I really don't read books, to be honest with you. Not these days, but I used to read books by a guy called Clive Cusler. And these were action books based on it, like a James Bond character, I suppose, called Dirk Pitt. Um, and the thing that I liked about them was they, they mixed historical fact with fiction. And so you might discover something in the Sahara Desert, like an ancient boat. And the story rolls around that and you get some evil people trying to take over the world. And Dirk Pitt, who worked for the underwater marine agency, he eventually, you know, saves the world. But uh, I, I, I did used to enjoy that mixture of, of fact and fiction. So his books are the ones that I would take away on holiday and read. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And what is the location that impressed you the most? Well, my favourite place in the world is Kuala Lumpur. And I did work for a few months for the University of Putra, Malaysia, 
were based just outside Kuala Lumpur, but that my favourite place in, in all the world. And I'm fortunate enough to have been to many, many different places. So, you know, there are lots of other places that come, come a close second. <laughs> Cool. And what is the one piece of advice that you would give to your um, 20 years old self? Well, I, I got three bits of advice, really. Um, one is to believe in yourself. You know, I would say I'm, I lack self-confidence, but, you know, when I'm growing up and I'm shy, you know, I didn't realize or understood quite how people saw me. And so if I believed in myself, you know, At the age of 20, maybe my life would have taken a different course. So believe in yourself, be true to yourself. You know, whatever you do, always try and stick to what you believe in and not be influenced by other people when you don't, you're not convinced by it. And the final thing is communicate. Communicate with human beings, be able to express your feelings. You know, I come from a family where My mum and dad, I was an only child, my mum and dad loved me, but they didn't really show a lot of affection to each other. They didn't really communicate their feelings to each other. Mm. And, and I guess that's the one thing I would have changed about myself. It's taken me many years to learn that you do need to communicate with other human beings and to let people know how you feel about things. Yeah. Uh, communication is 80% of people's success. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's, I think, the perfect way to end today's interview. David, thank you for your time. I think that you shared a lot. It was interesting to hear your thoughts about VR technology and use cases in education as well as healthcare and in helping people with mental diseases. Thank you for sharing your wide experience in different industries and different projects. That was really great to, to know more about your experience. Before we finish, what is the best way to get in touch with you? For example, if startups want to hear your, your thoughts on their pitch deck and so on, how it is better to reach you? Well, you can contact me through email. I don't mind anybody contacting through email or LinkedIn initially. As long as people don't use LinkedIn to sell me things, I'm more than, <laughs> because a lot of people do, yeah. uh, but you can connect with me through, uh, through LinkedIn, just find my name and you should be able to contact me through there. And I am you know, more than willing to help people who are uh, trying to get started in business. In fact, uh, next year, I hope to be doing some work with uh, University College London who are setting up uh, a new health innovation and entrepreneurship course. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of thing that I'll be helping to mentor young, young people wanting to do that. So always happy to do that and give your opinion. I'm not always right, but, you know, you can judge for yourself. I'm, I'm happy to share what I know with anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you, listeners. And um, yeah, see you in the next episodes. Okay. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah. uh, great to, to see you doing uh, this kind of stuff. So yeah, thank you. Thank you.